Impiraressa. From the Venetian. Impirar. To thread. Name given in Venice to the craftswomen who used to thread colored glass beads with long needles. Episode 3. Data Porte. A radio drama. Seb and I were standing at Hare's side. He had taken one of her hands and was examining her nails. I had put my glasses on to have a proper look at the color of her skin. Under the fluorescent light of the room, it seemed as white as the purest porcelain, even though some patches had acquired a sort of translucent quality about them. The skin looked firm, but I had learned through experience that if I had applied too much pressure, it would have cracked. Like all our previous models, she was dead. Sat with her hand down and passed me a pair of latex clothes. You will look stunning, I promise, dear. A perverse twist of destiny had landed Seb and I this job. We were in the final year of our BA hair and makeup for fashion course and had managed to pile up massive debts. Fees, rent arrears, bills and other assorted expenses had turned into what looked like an insurmountable mountain that was crushing us day after day. The year was coming to an end and the only thing that seemed to keep us alive was dreaming about funding our own studio and working in the fashion industry. I had met Seb at college. We came from different countries, but we both shared a working class background and grew up on a steady diet of music videos, art and fashion magazines and visionary novels. At the end of the first year, we left the student accommodation and rented our own flat, moving there our collections of magazines, books and records to focus on building our future together, at least professionally. Seb's boyfriend, Mark, was studying in Manchester to become a graphic designer. Mark was actually one of our main supporters and had even helped us coming up with the name and logo of our air styling and makeup studio, Mimi's Magia. The name came from a never-staged mimic acrobatic ballet with extravagantly colorful costumes by Fortunato De Pero. It was a reference to our passion for avant-garde ballets and a hint at my Italian origins. At that stage in our lives, everything seemed easy and fun. Then we were suddenly caught up in a spiral of debts. So we did what you do in these situations and got average crap jobs. Seb worked the afternoon shift in a fast food chain. I worked as a barmaid in a pub during the evening and as a waitress in a cafe at weekends. Though we were surviving, our salaries were low and this meant we were struggling to make ends meet, let alone paying our debts. One Sunday evening we sat at the kitchen table to gather our thoughts. We both knew things had to change as soon as possible and we also had to start concentrating on the mood boards for our end of the year project. My mind is totally blank, I can't seem to be able to concentrate. I massaged my temples as I spoke. Francesca, we need a holiday or we must at least get a better job, Sam suggested. And who would give a better job to two hairstyle and makeup students, I asked him. 
Well, today I met my uncle in the street after I finished my shift, Seb announced. I didn't know you were your uncle, Lydia. I told him, surprised. Well, it's a long and complicated story, Seb shrugged. I thought Seb was joking, but yes, it was a rather long chapter in his family's history, with one main character, Uncle Sammy, in the role of outcast and taboo subject. By the time he had turned 20, the younger brother of Seb's mom had gone from petty juvenile delinquent to professional drug dealer, alienating his entire family. Then tragedy struck. His best friend had a heart attack after snorting a vast amount of cocaine Sammy had sold him. Police didn't find the supplier, but Sammy suddenly realized that he wasn't scared of ending up in jail, but of dying. And obviously, he felt directly responsible for the death of his friend. At the funeral, scared and inconsolable, Sammy met his future wife. Janet worked as chief mourner for her father's funeral parlor a rather unusual role for a woman. She noticed Sammy crying and, at the end of the function, approached him, thinking it was a family member. One thing led to the next, and after a few weeks, the two started going out together. Sammy didn't stop dealing drugs, though, and Janet's father launched his own investigation into the matter. James was a widower, had raised his daughter by himself, and didn't want to see her married to a drug dealer. As soon as he realized the relationship was getting serious, he asked Janet to invite Sammy to dinner. The poor soul thought Janet's family wanted to make the engagement finally efficient, but there was something else behind the invitation. After a relatively quiet dinner, Janet's father invited Sammy to see the pride of his funeral parlor, his heiresses. Sammy thought it was a creepy proposition, but promptly stood up and followed him. After showing him the vehicles, James became a bit more aggressive and plainly explained him that he wasn't letting his daughter get married to a junkie. According to the legend, Sammy, who was slightly drunk, replied, I'm not a junkie, sir. I'm more of a businessman. The first punch hit Sammy in the stomach, the rest landed on his face and head. While beating him up, James told Sammy he loved his daughter dearly and she was free to marry whoever she wanted, but first he had to clean up his act and get a job. Sammy woke up a few hours later in the accident emergency of the local hospital where James had taken him after beating him to a bloody pulp. A week later, Sammy still had a broken nose, but had already started working at James' funeral parlor. When six months later, Sammy and Janet got married, drugs were a juvenile accident in the life of Seb's uncle. James had a stroke a few weeks later and unexpectedly died. Some say James died with a smile on his face, almost too happy about his achievement. According to Seb, for years, Sammy kept on touching his nose every time he heard somebody talking about drugs, not because he had a cocaine habit, but because he could still hear in his head the noise of something cracking under James' fists. So let me understand, 
your family blanked Sammy out first because he had a he was a junkie and then because he had got himself a respectable yet creepy job? I asked Seb. Uh, yeah, well, yes, more or less, he replied. But that's an ordinary job in the end, I told him. They felt uneasy about it, you see. They started thinking he was a creepy man. It seemed he could never run away from death. First he caused his best friend's death, then he started sending people off big style. They thought it was bad luck, Seb explained. But you kept on talking to him, I asked. I did. While growing up, I felt he was one of the few people in my family who really understood me, Seb admitted. So what did it tell you? I urged him. Sammy saw me wearing the fast food uniform and asked me if I had finished my course. So I told him about our problems, Seb paused. He says he may have the right job for us and to give him a ring. And the job doesn't involve drugs, right? I tried to guess. You got it, Seb replied. Sammy's funeral house was a family business named after his father-in-law's grandfather, Leonard Jones and Sons, LTD. According to Seb, Sammy didn't want to change it because he was too afraid old James would have come back from the dead to kill him if he had ever done so. The funeral parlor was a rather large building divided in two parts, with three medium-sized rooms to display a body in a casket to visitors a wing with the preparation rooms and a walk-in refrigerator. Next to the funeral parlor, there was also a small chapel and the graveyard and crematorium were just 10 minutes away by car. The building was located at the edge of a housing estate. It seemed like the perfect place. It was almost symbolical, hinting at the liminality between the upper and middle classes living in other posh and hip parts of the city and, and the disenfranchised populating the derelict estate, almost the boundary between life and death, or heaven and hell. We had a bit of a wardrobe crisis before going out to meet Sammy. Seb insisted, insisted we were meeting his uncle after all, so he wanted to go to the funeral parlor dressed in a casual and ordinary way. I thought instead that if this was going to be a sort of official interview, we had to look the part. The problem was that we didn't have any proper clothes, and our efforts to look professional and minimal had semi-tragic results. We looked indeed like a couple of depressed goths. When we stepped into the parlor, the woman at the reception welcomed us warmly, greeting Seb first and giving him a hug. Hey Seb, how are you? Um, your uncle is waiting for you. Ah, and you must be Francesca. Seb told us about you. Lovely to meet you. Please come in, come in. Aunt Janet vigorously shook my hand and invited us both to follow her to Sammy's office. She knocked on the door, opened it and let us in. The office was extremely tidy. Sammy, a slightly overweight man in his late 40s, was dressed in a formal attire. I looked intent on working on a laptop at his desk. Next to the computer sat a cup of coffee and in an anonymous mug. A crime novel? 
a small pile of invoices and a couple of screw-shaped plastic objects. A catalogue of coffins opened on the desk gave away his profession. I looked at the catalogue and felt a bit uneasy. Sammy stood up from his chair, realised something was wrong with me and immediately broke the eyes. Hello there, come in, come in. Oh, oh, are you both in that goth phase too? He asked, looking at our clothes. Seb shook his head and opened his lips to say something, but Sammy interrupted him. Uh, your cousin Elizabeth was into that last month. I told her to behave in a more cheerful way, and one day she turned up here after school wearing a black and pink lace dress, like a sort of pretty yet disturbing Victorian doll. She said she was a gothic Lolita now, uh, then sat at the reception, opened a notebook on which there was written Death Note, and started writing in it with a long quill pen. She spooked out two clients who had come in to pay for a funeral. They thought she worked here, and that was her uniform. I couldn't stop laughing, Sammy smiled, recounting the story. Well, uh, actually, we were just trying to make an effort and look more formal, I explained. Oh, there is no point in looking formal, since I haven't given you the job yet, Sammy laughed in a jolly manner. He urged us to, to take a seat, so we could have a proper chat. Janet knocked brought in a pot of tea with cups and left us with a smile. Sammy turned serious. The thing is, kids, I desperately need to renew the space a bit. At least one aspect of this place. Laura, the woman who takes care of the hairstyle and makeup services, is retiring in eight weeks' time. It is difficult to find people who are qualified to do this job and who are willing to do it. Besides, trends are changing. Trends? Seb asked him in a puzzled tone. It's not only elderly people who die, obviously. There are people of all ages out there dropping dead like flies. But some of them leave behind the corpse and the most bizarre requests, Sammy told us. A month ago, we had a prominent city banker who had lived his entire life as a man, but wanted to be buried in full drag because, as he stated in his will, he always felt like a woman throughout his life and now he could finally be one. There have been cases in which Laura had to spend half a day on the internet only to check the style of makeup uh, favored by the beloved celebrity, actor or pop star of the faithful departed to make sure the last requests were fully respected. But we can't spend hours on the internet to prepare corps. We need clear and instant ideas and professionals who can carry them out swiftly. What we have never done any mortuary science in our course, we study fashion, not thanato aesthetics, and we wouldn't know where to start from, I shook my head. I wonder why universities and colleges are so useless nowadays and then they complain on newspapers about young people coming out of expensive courses in the creative industries but then lacking business skills. Semi replied shaking his head. Then resuming an optimistic tone he continued, Laura will be with you for a few weeks. 
after that she can come here part-time to help and she will always be available to provide suggestions and give advice. But we never saw a corpse in our lives, Seb added. There's always a first time, son, Sammy replied, slowly noting and pausing for a few seconds. Maybe he was meditating about his past. Better sooner, when they are not related to you, than later, when they are part of your own family, he continued, resuming his natural cheerfulness. I I'm not sure I can work with somebody who, you know, doesn't breathe anymore, I added. Francesca, dear, the dead are just like us. Unlike us, they need to get dressed and get ready. They don't go out shopping, they don't speak, they don't complain, but they do need to get ready for one very last special occasion. Their families and friends may want to say goodbye to them, and they must look the part. Seb told me you both need a better job. I'm offering you one, and I'm also offering you the skills that go with it. You don't need to do it forever in your life, do you? Sammy concluded. I had to admit it. It was almost convincing. But I was still scared. Maybe he sensed that. It is a well-paid job, Sammy announced. How much well-paid? Seb timidly asked. Well, we are working on new brochures. I would like to offer customers especially tailored makeup and hairstyle service starting from 650 pounds. You can either work as freelancers for me, and in this case you get paid by the job, or work full-time for my parlor. I will also pay for the products you need. So what do you say? Sammy looked at us eagerly waiting for an answer. Seb was almost going to say yes, but I kicked him. Um, despite being tempted by regular income, I just felt it was a bit too much for me. Can we give you the answer in a week's time? I asked. Give me a call by next Friday morning at 9am. Sammy smiled broadly, as if he already knew the answer. Then he stood up to accompany us to the door. Uh, by the way, can I ask you something, Uncle Sammy? Seb ventured. Sure, son, Sammy nodded. What's this? Seb asked, taking one of the plastic screws and inspecting it. Oh, um, that's a disposable trocar. I was just placing an order for Laura when you came in, Samir explained. A disposable what? Seb inquired. Um, something used in the embalming process, you know. It helps draining bodily fluids and organs after replacing the, the blood with chemicals. But you don't need to know how to use it, Samir replied. Not yet. We only talked about Sammy's offer that evening. We were both scared, superficial, and silly. This man was offering us a properly paid job, and we were refusing it. It's, it's creepy, may socially kill us, I told Seb. We wouldn't have to tell anybody, and we wouldn't have to do it for our entire lives, Seb replied. I don't know, I think we'll, it will put me off life. I announced it in a dramatic tone. We will never know if we won't try it, though, Seb reminded me. But I'm scared, I admitted, like a child, a petulant child. I agree with you on that, yet we need the money, Seb concluded, suddenly more resolute than me. The cons seem more than the pros, 
and we went to bed thinking about death and makeup. Our usual routine, classes and useless jobs went on for almost a week. On Thursday morning, we decided to phone Sammy and tell him thanks, but no thanks. That evening though, something happened during my shift at the pub. I'm not sure how it all started, but coming back from the toilet, I found two guys shouting at each other. I took refuge behind the counter, got my smartphone and called the owner. He lived upstairs, so I would have hurried down to promptly address the situation. In just a few seconds though, things got out of control. One of the two men came behind the counter, spat at me, took a bottle from the shelf behind me, broke it and attacked the other guy. By the time the police arrived and the ambulance had been called, the offender had run away, leaving behind a guy with a deep cut in his forehead lying on the floor, surrounded by a pool of, by a pool of blood. After collecting some statements from the witnesses and alerting a car patrolling the neighborhood about the offender, the officers, a man and a woman, volunteered to give me a lift home, since I was too shaken and I lived on their way to the police station. It was past midnight by the time I arrived home. Seb was watching the news on TV. Call Sammy, tell him we're in, I told him. But it's past midnight, Seb replied. Just call him, he will understand, I insisted. Our fates were sealed. Laura was a remarkable woman. In her late 60s, she exuded elegance, wit and style. A red lacquered nails perfectly complemented a matte red lipstick, creating a striking contrast against her fair complexion and graying hair. You could see she had possessed great beauty in her youth. She had worked at Leonard Jones for over 40 years, and one of the first things that came to my mind when I shook her hand was how did she manage to do this job for such a long time? Laura had met us in Sammy's office and had taken us to the preparation room where she worked and showed us briefly around. Everything was spotless and clinical, from the two operating tables that took center stage to the solid uh, laboratory storage cabinets on the walls. There was no strange smell in the air, but one table was occupied by what looked like a corpse covered in a white sheet. There were also some machines, appliances and tools that I had never seen in my life. But I was more curious about Laura as a person than about who surrounded us. Is there anything you want to ask me concerning the job? She looked at us. Um, how did you end up working here? I asked. Um, they were looking for someone and I was looking for a job. Let's say we were both lucky, she smiled back. Did they give you nightmares when you started? I continued. In the beginning, it felt rather unusual and perhaps somewhat challenging, she started recounting. But little by little, I acquired the wealth and knowledge about embalming, which eventually led me to choose spe specialization as a mortuary makeup artist. It is a significant role, a great responsibility. Our task is to rekindle the memory of the departed before their passing and provide their families with the last image of their loved ones. 
Nora's perspective on the job was almost convincing and soon we learned another thing about her. She didn't like procrastinating. Shall we start? She asked us, even though it sounded like an order rather than a question. Then she approached the table with the corpse and put her hand on the sheet. Something moved in my stomach and I took a step backward. Laura unveiled the corpse. We will start with a dummy, she smiled while I took a deep breath of relief and moved next to her. Usually the family provides photographs to give us an idea of the kind of makeup favored by the deceased when they were alive. Pictures are extremely useful, obviously, also in case of disfiguring accidents. Laura, what's that? Seb, who had been silent until then, suddenly asked. Laura looked at the machine Seb was pointing at. Uh, it was a certain metal box with two flow meters and a long tube. Oh, yes, that one. Uh, that's an embalming machine, Laura replied, but we won't be using it. Then a red lips extended in a soft smile and she had the not yet. I started cursing Seb's curiosity. If Laura had told in our course, she would have been the star lecturer. She was extremely kind and gifted with great patience. For two long weeks, she told us the basics of her job. How to apply makeup to cold skin as opposed to warm, how to remove blood, cover nasty wounds, reconstruct an entire face of specific facial features using wax, and work on other minor reconstructions. Some were classes were a bit tricky as they touched upon chemistry as well. We looked at color theory, non-thermogenic makeup using oxides, micas, cornstarch, pearl and rice powder and adding human hair fibers where hair was missing. We did embalming theory with Loran Head, a tall and lean guy in his 30s with a receding hairline and long sideburns. Ed loved listening to mu loud music and often worked with massive headphones on. Both Ed and Laura were professional embalmers, but she was more specialized in temporary reconstruction and makeup. They worked together and uh, um, he took care of washing and dressing the body as well. Ed, Laura assured us, was a true master in the fine wrinkles in the forehead, the nasolabial folds and feltrum of the upper lip. Is the sculpture practically wasted on this job? Laura stated, while Ed blushed, proudly adding, we were also one of the first funeral parlors that went greener thanks to Ed's idea of using glutaraldehyde-based fluids for embalming purposes rather than formaldehyde. Laura kept on reassuring us, saying we would have loved the job once we had understood it a bit better. In exchange, we showed her our favorite colors, fluorescent shades, holographic powders that produce glittery effects and metallic nail wraps. Laura laughed. That's exactly what many clients ask us and send a send-off marked by theatricality and drama. Things have truly changed even in death trends. The time has really come for me to retire. At the end of our four-week-long crash course, Sammy came into the preparation room announcing the next funeral will be yours in his jolly manner. 
His intentions were good, but his words carried a somewhat ominous tone. Deep down, I hoped that people would have stopped dying on that same moment and that nobody would have needed Sammy's services. I was still afraid and a part of me firmly refused to deal with death. Then, two nights later, Sammy called with a brief message. I'll see you tomorrow at 2pm, he briefly announced. Then he paused and added in a quiet tone, almost apologetically. I admit, she isn't what I was hoping for. What do you mean? I asked. But he had already put down the phone. I wish you had to deal with something less visually shattering for your first job, Sammy told us the next day in his office. But a deal is a deal and your apprenticeship is over anyway. Besides, sometimes it's better to start with something difficult rather than with something easy. The jolly bastard, I suddenly mumbled in my mind. What happened to here? Seb asked. You may have heard it on the news already, Sammy started. The young woman in the park. It, it didn't take us long to realize that the innocent jogger in our late 20s who had been stopped to death in a local park and had then been disfigured with a razor blade was actually the same corpse that was now waiting for us. The hospital did a great job though, Sammy highlighted. They did the autopsy and stitched her back together. But how can I put it? She still has a somewhat frightening appearance, he concluded. We suddenly put on our lab coats, shoe covers, gloves and face masks. The smell of blood and either ethanol and alcohol was hanging in the air. Ed had just finished embalming here and now it was our turn to come here, put cream on her face to prevent skin dehydration and do her makeup. We approached the corpse, the head and shoulders emerged from the white crispy sheet that covered the rest of her body. There were several cuts on her face and traces of dried blood on her skin and hair. Her left eye had deflated. Her right eye was instead swollen and the skin around it had turned crimson, tending towards the maroon. Ed reassured us that the glutaraldehyde-based mixture he had used to embalm her would have lessened or eliminated the visible bruises. Seb seemed to take it pretty well, or maybe he was hiding it better than me. Something was penetrating into my nostrils, getting to the back of my mouth and calling from the deepest recesses of my stomach the remnants of last night's dinner. Laura sensed it and reminded me to smell my favorite perfume that she had suggested me to wear on my wrist before a difficult job to help me control nausea. I turned and did as I was told, inhaling what was left of my cheap perfume on my wrist. Laura didn't seem to mind my behavior. She smiled at the corpse and reassured her. We're going, we're going to cleanse your skin now. You will look beautiful, promise. Laura started removing the blood from her face and after a few minutes, she asked me to continue. Seb was working on her hair, so he couldn't help me. It seemed a painstakingly long process. My palms were sweating in my latex gloves, 
pearls of sweat kept on forming on my forehead and every now and then the lenses on my glasses would become foggy as I breathed into my face mask. It all happened in a fraction of a second. Laura had gone out to find the proper airbrush foundation color and Seb was removing dirt from her nails when my glasses slipped off my face. For an instant, I was petrified and a bit disgusted. Then I swiftly picked them, hid them in my lab coat pocket and continued working. Then Ed came back to help us dressing here and we moved on to the makeup phase. Laura created a true masterpiece. This wasn't the same woman who had been attacked and killed by a violent maniac. She looked like an angel. Laura said she was proud of us and let us go. We went home silent and shattered. If this was our first job, what would have followed? We soon discovered it. We discovered that people of all ages die every day for different causes and reasons. Tragic fatalities, long illnesses, sudden cardiac arrests. We also discovered that Sammy was right. People often asked for a memorable send-off in big style. Some wanted a full makeover and left detailed notes in their wills. Others opted for their favorite makeup colors, nothing more and nothing less. The final desires of young people who didn't expect to die were usually the most shattering because they had to be interpreted by equally shattered parents or siblings. Laura was a great help, but her time at Leonard Jones was almost over, and soon we would have been more or less alone. Four weeks after our first job, Sammy summoned us up in his office and gave us our first wage. I knew you would have made it, kids, he proudly stated, broadly smiling, but he didn't know that for one month, Seb and I had more or less dreamed about dead people lying in coffins and wearing the most garish makeup ever. While people were dying all around us, something else was happening. Our course was coming to an end. We had been so taken by the technicalities of becoming mortuary makeup artists that we were behind in the preparation of, of our final project, the most creative challenge in our course. Most of our colleagues had already arranged the team, found their models and enlisted their favorite photography students from other courses. So far, we had the name of our studio and the logo, but the theme of the project wasn't materializing in our minds. We had indeed lied to our lecturer, telling her we were busy producing a rather complicated photo shoot revolving around the theme of monsters. She seemed happy with that and luckily didn't investigate the matter further. But the only monsters we had in mind were actually the corpses that had started populating our nightmares. It would be smashing to have a nice story nobody dealt with before. Everything has already been done, I told Seb. Seb agreed, nodding, starting to make a list. Comics, sci-fi, the future, silent films, early cinema icons, disco, every decade you may think of, from the 50s to the 90s, touching upon the 60s, passing through the 70s, 80s, Electronic music, technology, virtual worlds, even dead with all those models on fashion magazines looking like ghosts or zombies, I reminded him. But maybe we could approach the theme from a different point of view. 
see when we did that first job with Laura. Wasn't it fascinating how she transformed there? It would it would be great to do something about body transformation from death to life, Seb told me. In Sammy's funeral parlor. I mean, you want him to fire and kill us as well? And what about the family of the deceased? I asked him. Oh, they wouldn't need to know, Seb shrugged. We would need a perfect corpse, I reminded him. Or maybe a frighteningly looking corpse that we could turn into a beautiful creature, Seb smiled. Little did we know that the perfect corpse would have turned up much sooner than expected. Two nights later, the phone rang. Phones started ringing in a distinctive way whenever Sammy called. Even the quieter and soothing ringtone would call to mind his joyful laughter. Another tricky job, he announced. Sammy often talked in a telegraphic style. Young Polish woman committed suicide, shocked to the entire family with an seat coming. Come here tomorrow at 10 a.m. We must talk. As soon as we arrived, Janet told us to go and see Sammy in his office. So you already know what's happened. Young woman committed suicide. But that was our only half of the story, he said, posing. She shot herself in the head. Um, classic gunshot wound. Bullet remained inside, so there is only one hole on the right temple. Laura told you how to go through in these cases, didn't she? We nodded. Because that is the technically difficult part of the job. But... At the moment, we have another problem. A family is having a bit of a discussion about how she should look like in the coffin. What's the dilemma about? Seb asked. Well, she wanted to be a model and had been trying to do so for four years uh, uh, since she was 16 when her family moved here from Poland, Sammy told us. Continuing, some agencies gave her jobs but never paid her or just rewarded her with clothes and she started getting depressed. They never thought she would have killed herself though. She had a nice day out with some friends to celebrate her birthday and then went home and just did it. Now the dilemma is parents want her face to be restored to her original beauty and the sister suggests to give her the glamour she couldn't have in life. I told them to go home and look in her bedroom for clues. Maybe she left notes or a final letter behind that could help us. Um, they said they would phone me as soon as they have clearer ideas. The call arrived an hour later. The young woman's sister wanted to speak to us. We had never dealt with families before, but uh, Sammy said we had to speak to her and Seb offered to take the call. The situation had completely changed after a search through the young woman's bag. They had found a few items that may have inspired us, um, among them a notebook with sketches of dancers posing in metallic bodysuits, then a ticket to a fashion exhibition and a guitar pick with the iconic picture of David Bowie from the Aladdin Saint album cover. My sister loved dancing, but she wanted to be a fashion model, and she also played the guitar, so we would like her to be buried with a makeup style inspired by music and fashion, she said. Seb reassured her we would have done our best. She interrupted him to add, um, please cover the... 
but she couldn't bear continuing the sentence and started crying. After Seb hung up, we told Sammy about the unconventional request. You may need more colorful shades of makeup than the ones you have here at the moment. He said, go out and get them. Then he gave us some money. And don't spend it all on makeup, he added in his jolly manner. A knock on the door interrupted us and it was Ed. I got her out of the refrigerator, he said, if you want to give her a look. The young woman was tall with a slender frame, her blonde hair displaying a hint of red, while her lips and cheekbones were flawlessly defined. She could have easily been a model and must have met the wrong sort of people on her path. She would have been perfect for our final project. She had shot herself on the right temple and that part of the skull had collapsed. The gunshot wound was covered with what looked like cotton wool that from white had turned red and brown. This was going to be a long job in terms of tacking in place dislocated features and tissue, drying out the open flesh and removing the black and damaged tissue. Ed was going to proceed with the embalming and then it would have been our turn. Sammy offered to give us a lift into town to go and buy what we needed. He went to get his car while we briefly discussed with Ed other details. I think we should do it now, Seb stated as soon as we closed the door of the preparation room, leaving Ed behind us. I got the same idea as soon as I saw her, but what if they discover us? I asked him. It's just our end of the year project, the pictures won't be going anywhere after that. Ed said the corpse would be flown back to Poland to be buried there, Seb replied. Well, we need the camera and other stuff we have home. I reminded him. I'll take care of that, Seb told me. Go and buy the new colors. I'll tell Sammy I need a lift home to get some other stuff we have there. It was a long and tiring process. We started by taking a few pictures of her face with the hospital bandages. Then we took some more with the bullet hole clearly defining our skin. We cleaned our skin, closed the hole with wax, airbrushed fluid foundation and started working on glamming air up with a mix of bright shades and some glittery pigments for that added dose of decadent glamour. Every time we completed a new step in the reconstruction and makeup process, we took a picture. The final picture showed her restored to her former beauty her face decorated with a motif reminiscent of David Bowie's iconic lightning bolt on the cover of Aladdin Sane that extended across the largest section of her face. The makeup featuring shades of sky blue along with hints of orange and yellow harmoniously complemented the copper hue we had sprayed onto her hair, infusing it with delicate pink undertones. Sammy congratulated us and said she looked like a model. We thanked him, told him we were exhausted, even though we were on a bus, and headed home with our camera hidden in my bag. We got a taxi back home and rushed to the computer as soon as we were in. As we copied the images from the digital card to the desktop, I put on a pair of old glasses. By the way, what happened to your glasses? The ones with the squarish thick black frame? asked Seth. I lost them on the bus, I lied. That's a shame, they suited you, Seb sympathized. I'll get a new pair after we pay for our debts, I reassured them without taking my eyes off the screen. 
We spent the night looking at the pictures of our beautiful corpse. We had taken around 300 photographs, but in the end, we only picked 10. We put them in order and saved them on different storage devices because we were completely paranoid and scared we may have lost our precious project. The next day, we worked on the text to illustrate it. We played around the life and death theme, used extracts of Giacomo Leopardi's Dialogo della Moda e della Morte, a short dialogue in which fashion and death are portrayed as sisters, born of transients and intent on transforming human beings, the former exteriorly by applying your skills to hairstyles, makeup or clothes, the latter radically by killing them. In our story, fashion won though, transforming the corpse into a reborn glam icon. We entitled the project Death Apoté. We sent the zipped folder with images to our lecturer just a few minutes before the deadline expired. Then we went to bed and fell instantly asleep. We were considered the best students in our group. The lecturer was ecstatic about our modern fairy tale, as she called it, revolving around decay, rebirth and resurrection, a tale that could also be used as a critique of the fashion industry. She was particularly struck by the recreation of the most gruesome details, especially in the first image, with a perfect bullet hole and some incredibly real-looking blood. I bet that her opinion would have changed if she had known the truth about the whole story, and the blood not being made with cherry syrup or tomato paste, as you would do in a cheap horror film. The lecturer said she would have, we would have been the pride of the university at graduate fairs that invited us in her office and told us about this competition about fashion, style and photography she had heard about. It was taking place in France. It was sponsored by a major fashion house and several powerful magazines were involved. It would have been a good idea to submit there our Death Apoté project. After all, our work was about fashion, makeup and styling, but also photography. We knew we couldn't use the images for other purposes, for obvious reasons. What would have happened if Sammy or the family of the girl had found out? The lecturer scribbled down on a piece of paper the name of the competition, then added, by the way, the first prize is not your usual unpaid internship, but money. It could be handy for a student, no? I decided to check the competition site and found out it was divided in five different categories. Our project would have fitted in at least two of them, makeup and photography. We had all the information needed. Images, background story, resumes and even the logo of our studio. Everything in a neat folder. And sure, it was ethical, but we were tempted by the prize and the possibility of meeting someone from the fashion industry and get the job of our dreams. So we decided to risk it all. We digitally altered the color of the girl's hair and some of her features to make her less recognizable. We filled the form on the competition site and attached our files as requested. Then we called Sammy to tell him we would have had more time from now on since our course was over. Jolly as ever, Sammy invited us to have dinner at his house to celebrate the news. We never thought again about the competition. Then COVID-19 came, the world went silent, and while with the pandemic things at the funeral parlor became hectic, nobody obviously required our makeup services. 
We did some video calls for styling and makeup consultancies for a few young fashion designers for occasional pictures that were posted on Instagram accounts and used on digital lookbooks, but there was no money involved, just visibility. In the meantime, we kept on working at Sammy's funeral parlor. Even though makeup services weren't requested, the funeral home was overwhelmed by the waves of coronavirus deaths. One day, when we were at Sammy's and I was crying with exhaustion, my phone rang. It was from an unknown number and it was good news. We were among the photography finalists of the competition we had taken part in. Results were postponed because of the pandemic, but winners were going to be announced in three months' time during a special event to be held in Paris. We couldn't explain the details to Sammy and Janet, so we just told them the partial truth that our graduation project had got a special mention at the competition in France and we were invited to the final. Well, hopefully nobody will die while you be away at the competition, Sammy exclaimed, as happy and optimistic as ever. The organizers paid for our train trip and put us in a four-star hotel. As the train moved from St. Pancras, we started fantasizing about a different life in which we could have mixed with people from the creative industries, artists, musicians, and fashion designers. Then we started thinking about what we would have done if we had won the first prize. Buy new furniture, pay debts, splashing it on something completely useless? I saw some new glasses at that eyewear shop in town. I think you should get them, Seb said. Oh, that sounds like a great idea, I enthusiastically replied. We were still dreaming as the train entered Gare du Nord, and we kept on dreaming when they picked us up by car from the station, drew us to our hotel and assigned us a room where we found a bag of products, mainly makeup and perfumes, offered by the main sponsors of the competition. Everything seemed too good to be true. The following day was dedicated to getting to know the finalists, five per category, the jury members and random members of the press, during a special event at the hotel. And that was when things started getting a bit weird. None of the jury members, among them fashion designers, critics and the ubiquitous high-profile influencer, were on time. When they showed up half an hour later, it was clear they weren't interested in any of us, but they were totally up for an all-inclusive weekend package in Paris. Each of us had to present their work to the jury in English. The fashion category finalists were the first ones. The first finalist, a young guy from South Korea, seemed to struggle at times with the language, as it was in his mother tongue. To my dismay, a few members of the jury began to chuckle at this situation, which I found disrespectful. As the presentation went on, the jury completely alienated itself. While the finalists spoke, both the members of the fam famous avant-garde design duo in the jury seemed engaged in endless sessions of mindless scrolling on their phones. The high-profile fashion influencer was instead more active and taking pictures of the jurors' shoes, posting them online as her Instagram account instantly revealed me. 
in the meantime, the editor of a prominent fashion magazine, tall with soft skin and gravity-defying hair that gave him the look of a lollipop that had been energetically sucked by a hyperactive child, spent most of his time looking at each candidate in a discouraging way, kind of way, as if people who were not wearing velvet slippers like him weren't worthy of being alive. New jury members specialized in photography arrived when it was our turn. A journalist who kept on caressing his long beard as if he were trying to dig out of it what remained of yesterday evening's free dinner. A street photographer who, noted for his school images posted on Instagram, had scored with a powerful fashion house and advertising campaign. It was accompanied by the young Anip actress who starred in it. Then there was a university lecturer, an exhibition curator, who spoke in nasal tone, overused the word project when making our comments, and was clearly convinced of being Nancy Cunard. Her arms were indeed loaded with heavy wooden bangles that, rather than giving her a distinguished hair, simply impaired their movements, making her look awkward. Ten minutes before our turn came, we locked ourselves in a toilet cubicle to rehearse a two-minute version of the longer presentation speech we had prepared, as these people weren't clearly too interested in listening to us. As I took our notes out of my pocket to start reading them, I noticed Seb nervously playing with a screw-like plastic object that he had taken out of his pocket. Where did you bloody get it? I asked him. Oh, come on, you know where I got it. I'm just relieving stress. He shrugged as usual. Maybe we're not cut for it. People working in the fashion industry lock themselves in cubicles to do drugs. And look what we're doing here, I told him. Well, put it in this way. If we ever win this shit, I'll be the first makeup artist in the fashion industry who plays with a disposable trocar in cubicles to relieve his stress. Sap replied with the same jolly tone of his ankle. The edited version of our presentation was purposefully more shocking as I had started harboring murderous feelings towards the jury. It began with the sentence, have you ever stared at death in the face? That shook them all out from their egomaniac reverie and grabbed their goldfish attention span for long enough, while we confused them further with the life and death mantra. The jury could interrupt you to ask questions or add comments, and at the end of our presentation, the young and hip actress decided to add an incisive critique and stated that while she thought we had done a great job, um, well, you could obviously see the model was still alive and full of life. The high-profile fashion influencer, who for some kind of obscure reasons was now donning a short morning veil, vigorously nodded. I feebly smiled, but Seb couldn't contain himself. Yes, we admit it. We didn't really kill anybody for this shoot, he exclaimed loudly, while nervously playing again with the trocar screw. The model wasn't dead. There, you got us. Everybody laughed but us. Lunch followed, another occasion for the fashion clique to reveal themselves as a bunch of egomaniacs. The jury sat in a separate room from the finalists and the design duo sat in another separate room from the jury. I sincerely hope that the cocaine I imagined they were all snorting in their private rooms was at least good quality. We were free for most of the afternoon. 
while they debated about the winners in their supposedly private meetings that the fashion influencer made sure became less secret by posting live on social networks more pictures of random accessories donned by the jury members, while pointing out at the same time that a black veil was actually a genuine Victorian mourning piece and that she was wearing it because death was now fashionable. We realized that finished voting when we couldn't detect any more superficial instant posts on social media and when going out for a walk we bumped into the street photographer slash Instagram sensation wearing a massive digital camera around his neck intent on spotting stylish people walking around while vaguely looking like a butcher assessing cuts of meat. Reception started at 7.30pm in the hotel lobby. We went downstairs, but by then we were no more starry-eyed. A PR officer introduced us to the tall lollipop editor. We shook our hands as if we were leopards. We took our seats and the awarding ceremony began. The funnest thing, we won the main prize in the photography category. The PR officer who had introduced us to the human lollipop came to see us and shook our hands. Congratulations, by the way. I also work as assistant producer for an independent director working on a fashion film in London at the moment. Alistair is so talented, you must meet him. He is looking for makeup artists. Maybe you want to get in touch with him? She gave us a card. At the moment, his project is still crowdfunding, so there is no money in it. But it's so amazing working with him, and you'll get a lot of experience. Oh, by the way, I'm so glad you two won. You have a great name for your studio, and you look amazing. Oh, thank God you don't wear any real glasses like the other finalists. That would have ruined the final pictures. I mean, nothing against people wearing glasses for fun and fashion reasons, but real glasses? Could you imagine? Yes, I could imagine it. I immediately went upstairs to my room, emptied the contents of my bag and dug out the glasses that I abhorred because I thought were smeared with my first encounter with death. I checked them. There was an imperceptible trace of blood on one of the lenses. I didn't clean it, but I put the glasses on and went back downstairs. A guy with a painfully hip handlebar moustache was chatting with Seb who seemed surprised to see me wearing my usual glasses. Miracle, I found them at the bottom of my bag, not sure how they ended up there, I replied shrugging to his silent question. He introduced me to his interlocutor, the guy who owned a fashion and design magazine and wanted us to become his collaborators. He gave us figures, provided us with names of investors and mentioned the number of followers they had on social media. Maybe I thought is reliable? I take your offering a rewarded position, Seb ventured. I'm offering you more. A collaboration, he exclaimed. All the people at the magazine collaborate together to make the best possible publication on the planet, offering all its writers, photographers, stylists and editors not money but visibility. Unfortunately, visibility doesn't pay the bills, I replied, starting to pull Seb away. Wait! End of our moustache exclaimed, realizing we weren't interested. Collaborating with us would help you improving the numbers of your followers on social media, he pointed out. Say, how many followers do you have on Instagram, for example? Let me think, 
I replied, looking at the ceiling and pretending I was staring at an invisible counter hanging in the air right above our heads. I must admit, we have very few followers, at least compared to the number of corpses we provided our Thanatho aesthetic services to, but at least the corpses were financially rewarding. And with that, I dragged Seb away. The evening went on, relentless and exhausting like the dance marathon in the shoot horses, don't they? Stretching the night to an impossible length, allowing us to meet in a relatively short time a fair number of unpleasant models of life, a humanity I felt I didn't have anything to share with. There was the gonzo journalist boasting about his regular column, the hirsute Lotherio, on could you believe it, is sex life in a war zone? The ubiquitous Russian socialite, clad in an old couture gown purchased by her millionaire husband, rumored to be discussing the acquisition of a historical fashion house. Then there was the decrepit yet elegant muse of a late designer, with nostalgia in her eyes and heavy doses of resentment towards those who had abandoned her. And then the hip menswear designer and his partner, a fashion exhibition curator and matching bespoke sweats in totally mismatched proportions. And then the talentless artist, also known as Glitterbug, protected by a fashion house and therefore dressed head to toe in its clothes. And he was crying in his vodka and stating it was in mourning because of the European Union ban on microplastics that targeted loose glitter, a material he used in copious amounts and then the useless celebrity showing off the sneakers he allegedly designed for a prominent sportswear brand, and the polyglot advisor on multiple fashion brands, pretentious and pompous fashion agents, casting directors and fairy godmothers such as a talent scout wearing pitch black sunglasses indoors and talking in a vampire voice. Entertainment was provided by an up-and-coming poetess, co-opted by a fashion house and therefore wearing one of its t-shirts with a pseudo-feminist slogan, and a duo formed by a vintage buyer and a fashion historian who looked like the Dolly sisters but sang in the style of the Boswell sisters. A DJ set followed courtesy of a forgotten indie pop icon and an accessory designer impersonating Betty Page and wearing fuck me shoes. In between one track and the other, we were given colorful business cards with impossibly cool graphics and were at times drawn into briefly surreal investigations about who had had liposuction, who didn't survive coronavirus, who had released the latest non-fungible tokens, who would have lost their jobs to artificial intelligence and why did so and so insist on wearing a wig when everybody knew she was going through chemotherapy and wearing turbans much better nowadays than a wig anyway. There were further conversations, secrets about beauty routines of celebrities, whispers about the weight loss abilities of Ozempic, gossips about the mental health of these of that designer and about suicide rates in the industry. I felt out of my depth. I wasn't really into celebrities or gossips about who was dying or had a death wish. But should they had asked, I would have been perfectly able to explain them the technicalities of cleansing the skin of somebody who had just died. Towards the end of the evening, a woman in her mid-sixties, dressed in red from head to toe, introduced herself as a gallerist. 
and offered us space for a photographic exhibition during Paris Fashion Week at her gallery. She reminded us, anyway, that we would have had to send all the images printed and framed at our own expenses. Then she introduced us to her partner, a young fashion designer who clearly acted also as her toy boy. He was accompanied by a young man in a Hawaiian shirt, khaki shorts and a bucket pink hat who was introduced to us as the impossibly hip author of a book about exotic and interior design. The man was clutching to his chest a medium-sized heart-shaped red plastic beach bucket filled with water. I peered inside it and saw there was a creature in it. This is Otto, my pet octopus, he promptly and proudly answered my silent inquiry. Poor sad thing, I mumbled, looking first at the bucket and then at him. Are you referring to my Otto? he asked with a wounded expression on his face. I actually treat him pretty well. No, I'm referring to you, I replied. And if you treated him well, you wouldn't carry him in a tiny bucket to fucking useless parties. No word was said on the train back home the next day, we just didn't belong to that word or paralyzed snobbery and we knew it. Or maybe we had wanted to belong to that word in our minds but we weren't made for it. We weren't part of that fashion clique. As the train crossed the tunnel, I dug out of my bag all the cards we had been given and assembled them in a neat stack on the train table. How many trees had been felled to produce this small pile of glossy and glamorous cards for a bunch of obnoxious people? It was definitely a crime. What shall we do? I asked Seb, pointing at the cards as the, as the train entered St. Pancras. He stood up, took our case, grabbed my hand and we made for the doors. We jumped off as soon as the train stopped, then started running away from the train and the cards we had abandoned on the table, laughing louder and louder as we headed towards the exit. Sammy called that evening to ask how it had gone. Seb told him we had actually won. I knew it, you're really talented, but why did you come back? Didn't they offer you some kind of glamorous job? For the time being, we'll stick with the dead, Seb replied. And in the meantime, we'll pay some of our debts, I shouted loudly from the kitchen. That's a wise one, sticking with the dead, Sammy said. At least they don't complain. In the end, we decided to join the staff at Sammy's funeral parlor. As the pandemic subdued, we resumed our makeup duties on a regular basis. After all, we couldn't have afforded the precariousness that intermittent jobs in the fashion industry was offering us. It was bizarre, but the more we worked at Leonard Jones, the more we realized that we hadn't failed our dream, nor we had stopped dreaming. But the purpose of our dream had just changed. As Laura said, we had to make people look beautiful one very last time and restore an image of beauty in their relatives' minds. So our job was actually a rite of passage to the afterlife. Besides, we had acquired new skills. We had learned another profession that wasn't glamorous for most people, but that had its rewards. The dead told me a lot. First and foremost, that beauty can come from the strangest of places and that, like beauty, death is in the eye of the beholder. There are indeed many people out there who think they are alive, 
but they are dead and rotten inside. So that was me and Seb, and that's how we had ended up at their side. Another day, another dead person, a woman who had died of cancer. Let's get ready to say goodbye to your daughters, okay? I told her while I adjusted my glasses and looked at a picture portraying the same woman at a birthday party with two girls, maybe eight or ten year olds. Sammy had recommended us to make her look pretty and sweet and avoid being too daring lipstick-wise. Both the daughters wanted to see their mother one last time before she went to heaven. Their father was worried they may have been shocked at seeing her dead. Sammy reassured him our makeup artists are professionals. While Seb put the final touches to the woman's nails, I finished applying a soft eye shadow in a natural shade. There, I promise you we're going to look stunning, I told her. Her eyelids were closed, but I knew that behind them she was grateful and silently approving. This podcast is brought to you by Arenabernation and Cut Music. All the music featured in this episode is fully licensed through Cut Music.